hugely underserved market for small and mid-sized businesses in the legal community that they're not getting the support they need. They're all turning to Google, to LegalZoom, to wherever they can find stuff because they can't afford lawyers because our model is broken. So I looked at it and said, what if you ran it like a startup, almost like a SaaS model, and you could do full outside GC services and don't do it the way I had seen a lot of people doing subscriptions, which are basically blocks of hours. It had to be true subscription. I had clients where I would say, just give me a conference room, let me sit there. Because it gave me a chance to walk around and meet people. And you move yourself from being only the CEO can talk to you to now I know HR, I know accounting, and they can call you directly. And the CEO doesn't care because they're not paying more for them to call you. Welcome to Lawyers Who Lead, a podcast that challenges the notion that the law lags behind. I'm your host, Seagal Barnes. Each week, I invite a lawyer who's making powerful changes through extraordinary leadership. In each episode, we'll travel through another lawyer's life, identify what they do best, and then devise how to apply these concepts to your own world. So let's get to it. Welcome to Lawyers Who Lead. I'm your host, Seagal Barnes. Our guest today is the founder and CEO of Snyderman Law Group, as well as managing partner at Wellbridge Capital. In his various roles, he provides strategic business and legal solutions to small and medium-sized businesses at below market rates in a unique subscription model. He also invests in, supports, and helps businesses grow and looks for opportunities to disrupt and improve marketplaces. Please welcome our next lawyer who leads, Mark Snyderman. Mark, welcome to the show. So great to be here. Thank you so much. You may know already, but I start every episode with a little bit of gratitude. So I'd love to hear what is your favorite moment so far today? Oh, today I woke up with my dog at my feet and she looked up at me and gave me a good smile. So that's always a good way to start the day. What's your dog's name? Nyla. She's a mini golden doodle. And my daughter named her for New York and LA, which are her two favorite cities. So ah, I love that. There is something about animals in our life that like really enhances the life experience. I love it. What a great way to start your day. All right. Well, let's start with your lawyer origin story. Did you always want to be a lawyer? Yeah. So I decided I wanted to be a lawyer when I was probably in fourth grade. We did the trial of Hansel and Gretel for intruding and trespassing on the witch's house. I was a lawyer in the trial. Wait, so who did you represent though? Uh, Hansel and Gretel. Okay, so you represented Hansel and Gretel, and they were the defendants in this case? Yeah, they were the defendants in the case. Did you win? Yeah, of course. (laughs) Of course. Have to win. (laughs) It's funny. So, like, I ended up on a path that I was going to go to law school, and I had made that decision back then, and I never really veered off of it. What do you think it was about that experience that really stood out to you and made you feel like this is what I want to do? I think part of it was, you know, I actually was a theater geek. Uh, and that was probably the start of it for me. It was like fourth or fifth grade. I started to do like shows and things. It was a good way for me to, you know, sort of fill that, that piece of my life and that creative side. Lawyers get to do that stuff every day. There's a lot of theatrics involved in being a lawyer, whether or not you're in trial or even just negotiating deals. So do you, I know this is a long time ago, but do you remember what your defense strategy was for Hansel and Gretel? Not at all. I I tried to go back and figure out what it was. At one point, I was like, I should look up the teacher. I want to see if the teacher's still alive that taught me. I'm I'm old enough that she may not be around anymore, unfortunately. Do you remember her name? Fourth grade, I think, was Miss McGinley. Miss McGinley. Yeah, I'd have to look her up. It's been a long time. It's funny. I just had an interview like a few weeks ago. Her name is Melissa Holloway. And she had a similar experience. I think it was also in fourth grade or third grade. 
and she had to represent Goldilocks and the okay. little bear. That's crazy. That's the same exact story. Yeah. And so um, in her situation, she remembers her legal argument. Okay. And it was that Goldilocks had narcolepsy and she just <laughs> fell asleep everywhere. <laughs> That's great. But she also remembers her teacher. And this was yeah. also a pivotal moment for her. And so shout out to all the teachers out there that yeah. really create these creative ways in which to teach that really can make an impact. Like on Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. Awesome. So you have this fourth grade experience. You go on. You don't veer off the path. You go to law school. You graduate. What did you want to do at that point? So I was working in a law firm from the day I started in law school. Actually, before law school, that summer, I actually was doing courthouse reporting, running around from one courthouse to another, like filing documents for local lawyers and serving subpoenas and stuff. I had to work. I had no choice. There was no money for me to go to law school. So I was in law firms from the first year on. The first year I was in a personal injury firm. I realized that wasn't me. Then I went to a commercial litigation firm and I was like, this isn't me. And then I ended up at the Philadelphia Stock Exchange in their legal department my third year. And I was like, wow, I really like this corporate and securities world and then moved up to New York. When did the shift from working in corporate and securities to working for yourself start to happen? I was at a firm in Midtown. I got lucky enough to get pulled in-house to one of the cable companies when they were going public and went in-house, stayed there for about six years and realized that I liked working for a company and I was much more geared on the business side. Moved over to a small privately held engineering company back in New Jersey and within a couple of years ended up being chief operating officer. So I actually ran that company for about 10 years and ran it through its growth phase. We went up from 75 employees up to 300 employees. I learned a whole lot about being a businessman, being a leader, being a manager, but also being the company attorney at the time, building out a legal function and a compliance department underneath me. I just hit a point where it was like 2016 and we had hit our maximum and I wanted to do another run at it. And the owners were kind of like, yeah, we're good where we are. And I just said, you know what, why don't you continue to run the business and I'll go do some other stuff, but I'll continue to support. It was a good situation for me because I was able to jump out on my own with the benefit of having one large client already in place, you know, realized I had to go start finding business and doing all that kind of fun stuff. I didn't really have the network that I would have liked to have had to go out on my own, mostly because I was running a business for the better part of 12 years. And you're not out doing any of those things. So the first year or so was really about trying to reestablish a formal network. So you're COO, you grow this company and, you know, running a business is not easy. It takes a lot of work, especially when you're scaling from 75 to 300. There's a lot that goes into that. But then you make this life decision. You say, you know what? I want to have another go at it. What did you mean by that? I wanted to be involved in multiple things at the same time. I never wanted to be just one thing again. I wanted to not be the person running it all. I wanted to seed things and guide them and get other people to be the one to take those things on. Like just energize and empower people to do what you know they can do and find the right people for the right positions and, and just really let them be great at what they could do as opposed to me being the one trying to drive it all. Right. It's an interesting leadership lesson too. There is a difference between being the leader and trying to pull everyone up, which is really yeah. hard, right? Yeah. Versus someone that is purely able to have the time and energy to 
help others lift the company up. When I was running Lawline as chief operating officer, it was like something you can only learn when you go through that experience, right? right? And for me, it was very draining to try to pull and how to learn the techniques and tools on how to help others pull themselves up. Yeah. I mean, it's exhausting. I say the COO role is probably the one role in any decent sized company, even in small companies, the same thing that you just, you bear the weight of everything. Yes. I I always say I went to bed with 300 people on my back every night. I had direct responsibility to make sure that they still had jobs every day and you feel it. You feel it. And I think it's really important to also emphasize that there might be people out there that are like, well, you shouldn't take it home with you. But I actually believe that if you don't feel it, you're not doing your job. Yeah. Yeah. You're not the, you're not the right person for it if you don't feel it. There are techniques on how to burn, not to burn out from it. Yeah, those would, those would have been good for me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that's what we're here to talk about, right? Yeah. We're here to help other people listening oh, yeah. that are leaders in law on what those tools and techniques are. This is really important stuff to be talking about. And I just, I really appreciate the candidness of that because it's not easy for people to say, you know what, I, I fell asleep really worrying about these other people. Yeah, if you don't have that empathy and the ability to actually understand what people are going through and want to be there for them you're not really a leader. Exactly. You're a manager, you're a boss, you're not a leader. There's always a huge difference there. I agree. So before we move on to the next piece of your journey, I do want to stick to this a little bit more. Now that you have all of this experience and you've been through so much and you've also consulted and advised so many other companies on this, Mm -hmm. what are some tips and tricks on how to deal with the weight of being a leader of so many people making sure that you're empathizing, but also making sure that you're taking care of yourself at the same time. You know, that's a that's a big piece of it is making sure that you're taking care of yourself, right? Having those outlets, whether it's meditation, whether it's fitness, whatever those things are for you personally, you have to do that self-care. You have to be self-aware and you have to find those things because I didn't do that when I was running the company. I didn't do those things. And I did push myself through uh, into depression and I dealt with all that. I was through therapy. I've been through all that. And Mm -hmm. you come out on the other end and you realize that your own health and being is really important. First of all, thank you so much for sharing that part of it because not everyone feels comfortable sharing it. Yeah. And I really appreciate the vulnerability. It's an important topic to talk about. And I appreciate you being so outward about it. In addition to that, I also really agree on the importance of that self-awareness piece. I think that tools like meditation and more importantly, even therapy really help us kind of break down the things that are bothering us and the things that we need to tackle. And if we don't do that, I mean, years can go by without even realizing what's going on. Oh, yeah, I did. I went years without knowing how bad I was and what I needed. I mean, it's it's a constant battle, right? You're battling it every day. Yeah. You know, even with medication, it's still it doesn't go away. Right. Just. It's just a, a different method to deal with it. And I say, from a business standpoint, the best thing I can say to people is make sure you're taking care of yourself. But also when you're building your company, if you build the right team around you, the weight is a lot less. If you have that ability to build the infrastructure and have the right things around you, the weight is distributed. You're always yeah. going to feel it. Like you can't not feel it. I only have a few employees now. I still feel it. I still feel it every day and I always mm-hmm. will because that's ingrained in how I am. But finding the way to have the right people around me to make sure these projects are going to go and we're all taking care of each other, it's a different feel. 
So what makes the right people or the right team for you? Uh, they have to be fun. <laughs> they have to be caring and be interested, right? Because I started to list all the projects out and was building out for Next Point Ventures that we have. Uh, we started to list out all the projects we're doing and all the new companies that we need to start this week. And I sat and formed five companies over the weekend that are all part of this venture. And I started to say to myself, wow, there's only three of us doing all this right now. <laughs> like mm-hmm. we really got to be willing to get into different things. Like we're doing everything from a dental shield appliance for dentist offices. We're doing consulting. We're doing event planning. You know, I have the legal work. It's all over the map right now. So talk to me about that for a second. You have Snyderman Law Group, you have Next Point Ventures, and then you're also a managing partner at Wellbridge Capital. Yeah. So the, the whole intent of the law group was when I was leaving the company, I said, there's a hugely underserved market for small and mid-sized businesses in the legal community that they're not getting the support they need. They're all turning to Google, to LegalZoom, to wherever they can find stuff because they can't afford lawyers because our model is broken. I truly believe the model is broken when it comes to supporting that community. So I looked at it and said, what if you ran it like a startup, almost like a SaaS model, right? But it's legal as a subscription and you could do full outside GC services to small and mid-sized companies and don't do it the way I had seen a lot of people doing subscriptions, which are basically blocks of hours. That's just a discount of block. That's not a subscription. That's just a discount of block of hours. Right. It had to be true subscription. When I first started being a lawyer in Manhattan and you know, you're back in 97, 98, clients would still call you as their lawyer to say, hey, I'm going to look at new space in Soho for my, uh, it was Jill Stewart was the client, right? Big major fashion house. Jill would call and say, hey, we're going to look for new space on Broom Street or Green Street. Can you come down and look at it with us and talk to the landlord? By the time I was ready to start a practice, there was not one lawyer I know would ever get called to go look at an office or look at a building with their client. Well, yeah, because they would bill so much money that it would be like not even worth it. It would be absurd. Yeah. All I could think was, well, what changed in the practice? And the only thing that changed was the rates. We got too fancy. We got too big offices. We got too big of staff. The firms just got too fat. And somebody had to say... I'll change it. I want to understand this a little bit more. So legal as a subscription, but not blocks of time. So is it unlimited time per month? Yeah. And, you know, some of these people are like, well, how do you do that? How can you price it? Yes. You can price it based on if you're a general counsel type person, you kind of know where the rubber meets the road, where the issues are going to be. And you get some upfront information from the client in terms of, What kind of policies and procedures do they currently have? What does their infrastructure look like? And you'll be able to tell pretty quickly how much work it's going to be in a month. You might be a little wrong one month, but you're going to be right the next month. And it kind of all weighs itself out for that. You know, it's fixed fee work. So you're kind of just leveling your income out. And if you get enough of it, it works. It's fascinating. And when you say like some months it works out, some months it doesn't, you're just saying that when you agree to the subscription fee then it stays that way. Like there's never an adjustment of that thing. Yeah, there's no change. Yeah. There would only be an adjustment. Like I adjusted one client down, actually. I thought they were going to need more service than they needed. And it was like months of very little work. And I just called and I said, look, you know, you're not really using me much. I don't want to keep charging you this amount. You're going to get upset with me at some point and not want me around. And I'd rather stay around. So just cut the fee. 
Absolutely. What a great retention strategy. It shows that like they can really trust you to charge them what actually is a value versus just, you know, just to charge. It's a very value-based system, right? When clients come to me and say they just need one contract, I usually tell them I'm not the right person for you. (laughs) If you want somebody that's going to try to add value to your organization and get involved, that's really where I'm much more useful. You can hire any attorney to do the other stuff. And there's probably attorneys that are way better at the technical pieces of it than I am. I didn't spend 20 years in a big law firm just doing technical corporate law. I've been out in business doing business. <laughs> so I always say like, I'm a business lawyer. I'm not a traditional corporate securities lawyer that can cite chapter and verse of all the regulations. I can't do that, but I don't need to do that because it's not what I have to do. And is this a monthly or annual subscription? Monthly. Yeah, all, all monthly. Any client can leave anytime they want. It's fascinating to me because I agree with you. I think the billing system is broken. I think it's the reason why, like you said, there's a lot of issues with access to legal services. I also think it's a big part of the wellness problem for lawyers. How have you seen legal as a subscription affect both of those concepts of like accessibility as well as wellness for lawyers? The accessibility piece is great because, you know, the problem COVID really sort of makes a mess of everything, right? But I always had a theory yeah. and it worked in the first client that I picked up was, you know, hey, you don't ever have to come see me. I'll always come to you because I'd rather be in your office and seeing what's going on. And I had clients where I would say, I'm going to come over for four hours today. And they said, well, we don't have any meetings on the calendar. I said, that's fine. Just give me a conference room. Let me sit there. Because it gave me a chance to walk around and meet people. And you move yourself from being only the CEO or the CFO can talk to you to now I know HR, now I know accounting, and they can call you directly. And the CEO doesn't care because they're not paying more for them to call you. Well, first of all, it's stickier, which is great from a retention standpoint. But the other piece of it is, is you can do a lot better work because you're not just getting everything filtered. You're actually involved and you are a true fractional general counsel at that point. So that was the model was always like, I don't need real office space. I can use virtual spaces, but most of the time I go to my client spaces and I'll meet them there. Absolutely. So that was the the accessibility part, which I think is so awesome and such a great thing that you're doing. Um, but in addition to that, we talked about like how does removing the billable hour potentially help with mental health? Have you seen that also help with that? I, I think it could because it created more time for me. I created more work for myself. And I think that's just, me, and I don't think that'd be everybody. I think for a lot of people, it would be a great change to not have to be that engaged in, oh my goodness, did I hit my numbers? You still have KPIs, but they're just totally different. Yeah. So I do think it would change, you know, that level of pressure, which the billable hour is a lot of pressure on people. It is. So there's two questions I have from there. So It does change the KPIs. So can you share what changes in KPIs? Yeah, I mean, you know, your KPI is always revenue driven, no matter what, whether it's billable hour or a subscription. Now, the difference is I know what my target is for a month and I know I can hit that. I know based on my client base, I'm going to hit that target for the next six months, right? It takes a whole lot of pressure off you because as long as you're servicing and you're giving value to your client, you're pretty confident that you're not going to get fired out of the client that you're not going to lose the engagement, right? The engagement's an ongoing, you know, long-term deal. And when I bring clients in, I'm telling them, this is a long-term play. 
Like, I want to be your partner. I always said that my dream is that I get hired by some company that's maybe doing one to five million in business. I'm with them all the way until they grow to 50 or 70 million. And I say to them, you need a full-time GC. And I go out and I help them interview that person and put that person in place. That's the ultimate success for me. What a great goal. Love that. And I like the idea of engagement as a potential KPI as well, because the idea that as long as they're engaging me and I'm engaging them, then I know that I'm going to be hitting these larger KPIs. Yeah. When I had a client that kind of went dark, I didn't hear from him for a month or two and I hit him up. I'm like, what's going on? Oh, well, we're doing this thing over in Estonia. We have this new service center. I said, look, why don't we take a pause? Because you're not using me. And I never want somebody to call me and say, I paid you and you didn't do anything. I never want that to come back at me that way because then I'll feel like I didn't do my job. I think that the other thing that you said that was really insightful is you said, it might just be me, but more time gave me the ability to do more work. And I think that it's not just you. Uh, Anyone that's super driven, once you get more time, you're like, wait, oh, I can do more work, even though more time is what you originally did for. So I think it's really important for people to be at least intentional. Like if you're going to have more time, make sure that you want to use it for more work or that you're using it for the things that you initially thought Mm -hmm. you wanted to do if you had more time. Yeah, you're, you're always filling buckets, right? And we have to figure out yeah. which bucket you want to fill and where you're going to allocate your time to fill it. You only get 24 hours every day. So every second is important. Where are you going to spend it? And, you know, I make a specific choice to work from home most days. I choose to be at home and I can spend some time with my wife and my dog. And I can see my son before he goes to school. And when he comes home, it's great. Love that. I saw on your website, you were quoted as saying that the key to successful leadership is influence, not authority. Can you actually speak more about what that means to you? Yeah. So, I mean, it's not about being the boss, right? Your title alone will give you authority, but authority doesn't mean you actually can influence what they're doing and that you're going to influence them to do the right thing and be the best that they can be in their job. That's a totally different skill set, and it requires empathy, right? If you don't, if you can't engage with the employee on that level, you're never going to empower them and influence them to do what you want. In the end, it is still the CEOs and the COO, they're driving an organization. It's their organization. If somebody said, why don't they work like I work? Because it's not their, it's not their company. You can influence them to work more and work, you know, maybe smarter, faster, stronger, but you can't make them be you and nor should they ever. I always tell everybody, if you work as much as I do, I'm not doing my job right. You shouldn't work as much as I do. It's my company. I'm always going to be more engaged in it until I can get you ownership. And my whole goal would be everybody that works for me should own something. It's a really powerful statement, Mark. If you're working more than I am, and this is my company, then I'm not doing my job. It's opposite what most people say. but It really is. But it's the truth. Mm -hmm. What credibility do I have if I know that you're all working until midnight every night and I'm on the golf course? Where's my credibility? Don't have any. I grew up in the car business. So my dad used to work, you know, eight in the morning till 11 at night every day. I know what it's like to work. I started working at my dad's auto parts store when I was like 12 years old. I've literally been working since I was probably 12 or 13, never stopped. Isn't that interesting? I I also, I I didn't start at 12. I started at 14. My first job was um, a telemarketer, actually. (laughs) I would call people and try to sell them newspapers. It's the best. And um, 
It is, right? I mean, you learn so much from these jobs. I was also a waitress for a very long time and I never stopped also. Like I never stopped working. I think there was only like a little bit of my one yeah. year and the experiences and the work ethic that you receive from having various experiences like a car salesman or yep. a tele- telemarketer, the skills that you're able to create and then transfer and apply to new jobs. There is just something really important about that. And it's the empathy, right? It's also what yeah. teaches you that every person doing every job is important. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Okay. So I know you gave us some really great nuggets of information on leadership, but now we're going to hone in on okay. the law. What does leadership in law mean to you? Leadership in law is the ability to understand what your client really wants and needs and show them how to mitigate risk while they're getting there. Your job is to lead them to a decision and you can influence that decision, but you can't make it for them. What is something that other lawyers seem to misunderstand about the work that you do? I would say they totally misunderstand the subscription model. I talk to them and they're like, you're doing what? Well, why would you do that? Just charge them. And that's part of the problem, right? Yeah. Well, I'm hoping that this episode helps other lawyers better yeah, understand be that. So, and the yeah. purpose of it, right? And how it can really create a yeah. real impact. If there was one thing you could change about the legal industry, what would it be? Oh, the billable hour. I would say, you know, in, in litigation, it's too hard to ever do anything like what I do. It's just, it's too open-ended. But there are models that you could use. I mean, I was a government contractor for 15 years. You have firm fixed price, but there's different types of firm fixed price efforts. There's level of effort. There's Mm -hmm. ways to do a billable, but not to exceed. And then you hit certain levels and you have to go back and ask for permissions. There's ways to do things that would be advantageous to the client. And, you know, also start to take some of the stigma away from the way lawyers are and what we do to people. Yes. Just thinking about various business owners that I know who are just terrified of even writing an email because they're like, that email is going to be built. The reading of the email, the response to the email, my response to their response is going to be like, everything gets built. So they're like, you know what? I'm just not going to ask the question. But then what's the point? And they don't have the right advisor. That's what we should be. And we've taken ourselves out of it. I also think it's really fascinating, this SaaS model idea, because even as you were saying, like litigation is difficult. I was thinking to myself, well, I mean, there are certain cases or there are certain practice areas where that could actually still work. And even with SaaS models, there is this like threshold in which it's like, well, if you added a certain amount of users or if you add a certain amount of, you know, cases, you could go to a different tier of subscription, right? And so there are really interesting ways in which lawyers can look at other types of subscription services and use that as a guideline for how they can apply it to themselves. Oh, absolutely. It it takes these kind of conversations and hopefully, you know, some listeners that say, wow, that's something interesting. And I hadn't really thought about it. I think you just came up with a whole way you could do, you know, a certain set of business that way. It's fascinating, Mark. I really love this conversation. What is one piece of practical advice you can give to our listeners? These are leaders and future leaders in law. Be kind and be present. And, you know, to me, one of the things I hated about being a lawyer, especially in New York, uh, I'd say Philadelphia is very, very similar. It's too aggressive and there's not enough kindness and I never understand it. There's a point of, you know, you fight for your client's rights and for what you want, but there's also a point of reasonableness and when does it make sense to and when does it not? I use contracts, a great example, like you send a purchase agreement to someone and they rewrite the entire purchase agreement. And there's maybe four substantive points in there. 
The rest of it is just they wanted their own language. And there's zero reason to do it. Zero. Purely, I'm justifying my fees. And my client, if they don't know any better, they think I did this, all this work. All you did was piss the other attorney off to no end. They're furious because you just mangled their form. They have to reread the entire thing to make sure that nothing got lost in the translation. And you just created a whole lot of work for nothing. Absolutely. Like I could see a new lawyer kind of doing that because they don't know the difference, right? But if you're a seasoned practitioner and you're doing something like that, you are clearly not understanding like like contracts, right? Like that there are boilerplate language. It can be said in a lot of different ways. It really all protects everyone in the same way. Or at least have a conversation and say, listen, you know, here's some stuff that is important to our firm. Let's talk about it. It's incredible to me how under-discussed civility Mm -hmm. is in the legal profession and how being able to properly represent your client does not equal incivility. Yeah, to me, the incivility in the practice is the same person that when I was in law school, uh, you know, 1L, you're doing your research project and you have to go from all around the law library. I mean, I don't think the kids have to do that anymore, but we had to follow the key system all around the library until you get to that one page in the book and the page was gone because somebody had ripped it out. That's the same person and the same philosophy of there was no reason to do that. It wasn't a competition, but they created it. And that's a civility portion of the law and lawyers that's always been there. And I don't take kindly to it. (laughs) Yeah, I never, I like haven't thought about that in so long. Like that moment where you go, you realize that it's gone. And it happened to me as well. And I will say this, I challenge law schools because they do make a competition. It's all graded on a curve. And we got to give a little responsibility to the law schools to think a little bit deeply about civility and how we kind of ingrain that early on in their education. That's a great point. I really had never thought about it until this conversation. So you really sparked it for me. So thanks for inspiring me. It's really something I want to start thinking about a little bit more too. So final question, and you had spoken about it a little bit at the beginning. So it's a nice full circle. What do you do for self-care? I do a lot. (laughs) Meditation, almost daily. I try to do daily. Yoga, fitness. I was journaling for a bit and journaling is really good. I just, it got stressful for me. (laughs) So then I stopped doing it because it it can't be a stressful event. It's got to be something that is very natural for you. But I still do keep track of stories uh, for for writing a book at some point. All right. If someone wanted to reach out to you to connect with you, learn more about what you do, what is the best way that they can do that? Uh, LinkedIn is probably the best place to find me. I'm very active on LinkedIn. My handle is Mark Snyderman pretty much everywhere. Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, MarkSnyderman.com works. So you can find me pretty much anywhere. Awesome. Thank you so much, Mark. Really fun. Thank you. Thank you, leaders and future leaders, for listening today. We have a new guest every week, so don't forget to join us next week. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe or follow us anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts. You can also follow at Lawyers Who Lead on social. Let's celebrate and continue to build a community of leaders in law together. Lawyers Who Lead is made possible by Lawline, the leading online platform for lawyers who want engaging, relevant CLE and professional growth content. For over 20 years, Lawline has helped hundreds of thousands of attorneys level up by providing award-winning courses in hard-to-find areas and high-demand fields. They have so many courses to choose from that are actually really interesting to listen to and watch. That's why Lawline's rated the highest in the industry with over 1,000 verified reviews on Trustpilot. Lawyers who lead listeners get $100 off Lawline's unlimited annual subscription, which means you can take as many courses as you want for a really good price. 
Just visit lawline.com slash podcast to get the special offer. Check out Lawline for the best content for leaders and future leaders in legal.